In the founding of our great nation, there was much to do and all hands were needed to make things work. Children, as soon as they could walk, were trained towards chores that they could do, as everyone in the family was a valuable functioning piece. They didn't have the modern conveniences we have today, and so it may be difficult to think of just how demanding it was to keep a home. And if you think it's bothersome to find no bread left on the shelves at the grocery store at the hint of a winter storm, well, if they ran out of bread in the 1770s, they were out of luck until the crops grew to maturity again in the spring or early summer. It's amazing how much we take for granted. We wake up in the morning and are able to flip a switch and have light, or turn a handle and have hot water. A knock on the door and a box of food waits for us on the other side. As a parent, we always want better for our children, but as a result, Today, children through the years are losing more and more of the basic essential skills that were once the difference between life and death. And while I'm sure we are all thankful that we don't need those skills much anymore, it's never a good idea to let the past get too far away from us. It can teach us so much. So once upon a time, children were raised to be hard workers. The nation was built on the Puritan belief that hard work was the center of a moral life. Idleness was frowned upon, and a good work ethic was highly praised. And there is merit to this. We, we all, as a household and a community, should play an active role in its maintenance. Children helped put food on the table. They worked long hours beside their parents. It was a different way of life for children back then, but at the time, they had no idea their childhood would become practically non-existent, especially if they came from a poor home. The Industrial Revolution brought the most amazing advancements in modernization, but at such a high cost to our family dynamic that it would change the trajectory for decades. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret. And I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. There was always so much to do, sun up to sun down, that was necessary for a family's survival. Most everything came from the home and the grounds themselves. They raised their own livestock, chicken, hogs. They planted gardens, orchards, and hay. They grew cotton to make their own fabrics. They worked extra hard in the spring to prepare everything as much as possible in advance to stave away the harsh winter. Young men were taught the skills of their father, or, if they were lucky, were able to apprentice with a mentor to develop a trade, and once they were old enough, they would go out and work their trade, or open their own business, or stay on with the family until they got married. Girls were taught domestic duties, and depending on the number of boys in the family, they sometimes had to take their turn at the plow, milking the cow, gathering and butchering the chickens, and the like, but their main priority was to learn how to take care of a home and her future family. When the young ladies became 
of marrying age, coming out into society, they were searching for their mate. They were fulfilling their destiny for their future. This was actually the practice of most of the social classes. The upper classes had servants, slaves, or hired tenants to help get their tasks done, but their futures followed in much the same path as the generations before them. In this episode, however, our topic of conversation revolves more around the middle to lower class family dynamics. When large families had a few children to spare, or more likely they would make do with less hands so as to earn more income, they were likely to rent out the extra children to nearby farms or the more extravagant homes that needed maids or even to help with the elderly. Families of elderly or ailing parents may source out the young children in the area to exchange room and board for the care of the aging parent. They would seldom receive additional monetary compensation, but when times were especially hard, it was one less mouth for the family to feed. The work the children did was labor-intensive, but it was not intended to cause harm or to exploit them. It was essential to shape them into the adults they were meant to be, and those skills were necessary because adulting came at a much earlier age. I laid these ground rules because as we get deeper into the story, I'm hoping that it becomes clear that there is hard work that is good for your morale and your character and values that this country was based on, and then there is the hard work that has little benefit and long-term damage. For those that did not have a farm and depended on earning money for all of their household needs, sometimes the entire family would hire out to other nearby farms. They would be paid as one group, so the more hands they had, the more they could produce. They would receive a fixed rate per bushel of berries or cotton picked or oysters shucked or tobacco cut, for example. Children as young as three would be expected to pitch in. Berry picking and hulling, apple, shrimp, and cotton picking, shucking oysters, and gathering apples were just a few of the tasks for those small hands. At canneries, once you were tall enough to reach the conveyor, you were put to work. A study done in 1910 for New Jersey cranberry farms found that most children were from the ages of 8 to 10 years old, and more so In the agricultural field, they discovered that one-quarter of those employed were under 10 years old. Many families who lived in the North or Midwest could be hired by agents from other states to work through the winter months. Their transportation was paid and the rooms were included, but when they got there, they would discover the conditions were brutal. Many families had to stay in one-room shanties, They had to purchase their own food, which was only available from the company store, at exorbitant prices. The hours were long, and they worked in the hot sun shucking oysters which tear up your hands, or in the canneries or sometimes the tobacco fields. If you had little babies, you either had to set them on your lap, or they were kept in boxes within close proximity. No one was permitted to stay at home to watch the children. Many times the mines, such as in Pennsylvania, paid per carload of coal, so any additional hands that could make the process faster, much like the picking, were brought in. 
when laws were attempted to be passed to protect the children from the mine work later in that century, they would find that the children would take notes to school saying that they were unable to work because they were ill, but they were really miles deep in the earth, toiling away in a coal mine to help the family. And we haven't even touched on the effects of the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution brought the world amazing inventions like the steam engine, the cotton gin, the telegraph. The spinning jenny, for example, was an engine that could spin many spindles of cotton or wool at the same time bringing weaving of cloth into the Industrial Age. It made fabric available to the masses. And add to that a new sewing machine. It made clothing more accessible as off the rack and saved the home seamstresses hours of time. The creation of the electric generator in 1831 led to improvements of harnessing electromagneticism, which led to the creation of the dynamo, which became the first generator capable of delivering the power that was needed to run the newest model of industry, the factory, complete with assembly lines. As the people of the nation were heading west, the railway lines were a huge part of the industrial boom by keeping the growing cities linked one another and well-stocked. By the 1880s, the railroad became the dominant form of transportation for both passengers and goods. By the time the United States was celebrating its 100th birthday, we had electric lights, telephones, and streetcars, photographs, sewing machines, and radios. The creation of steel would allow buildings to go up higher than ever before. People migrated into city life towards the towns that never slept and on the cutting edge of tomorrow. Underneath this growth and ingenuity, you might be surprised that much of it was built on the backs of children. We're about to embark on one of the truly darker stories of our American history as a whole. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or... Type in 
historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. All the way back in 1575 in England, there was a public money fund for businesses to use to employ children into the workforce in order to, quote, accustom them to labor and to, quote, afford a prophylactic against vagabonds and paupers, end quote. So the seeds had already been planted from our English origins. In fact, early colonial law mirrored similar laws found in England to reduce the burden on society as a whole. If boys were orphans at the age of 13, they were sent into an apprenticeship to learn a trade. This was vague at most. The main goal was to get them off the streets where they could cause mischief. The businesses or tradesmen were not required necessarily to give the boys an income and there were no regulations as to the care they received. The room and board was all that was provided, and may have only been a mat and some bread. Not all were like this, of course, but surprisingly, more than I thought. Girls were sent to homes to provide domestic services with the same understanding. Some were given wages, but most were paid with room and board. Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of Treasure in 1791, who wrote a report that mentioned his support of child labor to increase the growth of industry with cheap labor, but would prevent children who would, quote, otherwise be idle, end quote. In the 1850s, the Children's Aid Society, which we'll talk about more in a moment, believed that the best way to bring children out of poverty was to have them work at an honest trade. All of these things, so far minus the few unscrupulous shysters, the call to action to keep children out of idleness and to learn a trade are still not enough to make us cringe. But watch how the arc of this narrative gets abused and completely thrown out of proportion. Following the Civil War, the United States saw rapid growth. During the Industrial Revolution, the need for human laborers was in high demand, and with the emancipation of slaves and the free labor they provided, production was often replaced by paying women and children very low wages. However, some freed slave children were actually pulled back into the same life, per se, when apprentice agreements took place. In short, the children were practically re-enslaved when their parents would agree to have the former slave master to train the children in the, quote, habits of industry, end quote, and these principles were deemed acceptable to the courts at the time. The former slaves would find that it was difficult to provide for their families with this newfound freedom, and they felt they had no other recourse than to send their children back. Production from the new multi-level factories was producing materials as fast as it was being consumed, and the beauty of these new mechanized systems is that it was not complex and little to no learning curve, making it perfect for those with only rudimentary skills. The assembly lines were so simple, even a child could do it. A news magazine even went so far as to mention specifically that the jobs factories needed filling were, quote, 
better done by little girls from 6 to 12 years old, end quote. Children were sent to work in factories, canneries, coal mines, on the streets, on farms, as servants, and in retail stores. Children could be paid less and put in the most dangerous of situations because they could fit in smaller places and could be used to work for long periods of time. By the 1820s, up to 40% of the employees were children working in the cotton or textile mills and were around the ages of 8 to 12. The Niles Register, the same magazine referenced before, proclaimed that if children from the ages of 7 to 16 that were producing, quote, nothing toward their own maintenance would go work for the mills, they would make a substantial difference in the, quote, value produced in the town, end quote. By 1870, one in every eight children was employed. By the 1900s, it increased to one in five. Now, I can hear some of you parents wishing you could send your children off to work to earn their maintenance and to keep them from being idle, spending hours in front of the screen of their choice. I hear you. I hear you. However, the laws that are in place today are there for a reason and took decades to remedy the atrocities of the times. They are there because it's the same battle, different era, where the battle of industry versus human welfare wages on. They are there to protect the children from those who would take advantage. Who would do such a thing to children, you ask? Hold that thought. Hello everyone, Elizabeth Bougere here from Bag of Bones. I just wanted to interrupt this episode to take a moment to thank you for getting Bag of Bones podcast to over 1,000 downloads. I love creating this podcast for you and am happy that you are enjoying it and sharing it with others. To show my gratitude, I'd like to send you a gift. Nothing big, just a little bones swag to say thanks. No catch, no gimmick. All you need to do is click the link and fill out the form, then sit back and wait for it to show up in your mailbox. Click the link, fill out the form. That's it. And thanks from all of us that help put Bag of Bones together for you. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. For the entrepreneurial spirit, there were the shoe shiners, messengers, and the glorified newsies. But here's the behind-the-scenes story. The truth, even with entrepreneurs today, it takes money to make money. And it was no different back then. The kids usually had to purchase their own supplies, usually at a steep rate, get out there and hustle their little bare feet off to make pittance. The kids that were messengers didn't really have a lot of overhead. They would run written messages from place to place or supplies or basically anything one needs to move from one place to another location quickly. This includes all kinds of weather. It includes all kinds of things. The kids would be running to and fro through the cities in their bare feet in the rain and snow shuttling things. Things got bad when businesses began trusting these little ones with their bankrolls. Soon, the wrong people figured out who carried what and when, and the children ended up being the ones who felt the most damage, first from the thief and then from the business owner. Shoe shiners can be seen on the street corners and train stations. 
Some of the boys would learn a dance routine or sing for their supper to get more attention. They are portrayed as happy-go-lucky kids just hanging out in case someone needs a shoe shine. But the truth is, the competition was so stiff that you had to work faster than everyone else, do a great job, and be in a great location. Many of them had to sleep tucked in a corner of an alley to make sure they could get the lucrative spot again in the morning. By the time they finished paying for their supplies, they barely had enough to take home to the family which they sometimes wouldn't even get to see for weeks. And speaking of hawking to get attention, the Newsies made this an art form. They would have to buy their inventory at the top of every morning and hit the streets to try and earn their money back and a little extra to boot. When there were no exciting stories, the boys weren't able to sell their stock and it would, for the longest time, make them lose money. They got to be pretty clever in the sales game, though. They would call out fake headlines to get attention, annoy the passers-by, employ fake limps and coughs to evoke sympathy purchases. The police spent as much time chasing the newsies as they did the pickpocket rings, which, if you've seen the musical Oliver, you get the gist of those working kids. Even today, when we hear the word newsies, you maybe think of young Christian Bale, or at the very least, your brain conjures up the image of the little raggedy-dressed boy calling out extra extra oh and by the way save me an aisle seat one of our other podcasts in the ragtag network just recently covered the broadway musical newsies if you want to check that out and it was based on a true story of this era for those who couldn't find work above ground there was plenty to be had underground working in a coal mine was hard Dangerous and extremely confining at times, making the jobs perfect for children. In the areas of the mines that the seams were low and not big enough around for pit ponies or tramways to fit through or tracks to be laid, the boys were suited up to drag the coal up to the surface. They wore straps around their shoulders and a belt around their waist with a heavy chain attached to the belt and to the cart. They pulled the cart, or sometimes sled, on their hands and feet, with one or two boys sometimes pushing them. They would be required to do this for 12 to 14 hours per day. In 1842, the Children's Employment Commission report would write, quote, Children were chained, belted, harnessed like dogs to a go-kart, black, saturated with sweat, and more than half-naked, crawling on their hands and feet, dragging their heavy loads behind them. They present an appearance indescribably disgusting and unnatural, end quote. The trammers were the children in the coal mines who would sit by a heavy door that needed to be opened and closed for the miners coming and going, and also to regulate the airflow. They would sit in silent shafts, in pitch black, for hours and hours alone. And if they missed the time to open the door, they would often be beaten by the men who didn't have time to worry if the door was going to be open for them or not. They just had to trust that it would be. One little girl's heart-wrenching story I found was six years old when she was a trammer. She told about how she would be frightened sitting alone in the dark, but dare not move for the punishment that would come. She confessed to singing when she could hear that there were workers nearby, but wouldn't dream of opening her mouth while sitting alone in the dark for the fear 
of spirits would get in her mouth and possess her. 14 to 16 hours at a time. The breaker boys had to sit hunched over a conveyor belt in a dark, shabby room as chunks of coal are added to the conveyor. The boys' job was to separate the coal from pieces of slate or other impurities as it passed them by. They had smaller hammers to tap out the unwanted silt. It was extremely dangerous, and many lost fingers. The coal dust would get so thick as the rows and rows of breaker boys worked. Many developed lung problems. Others wouldn't even make it to adulthood. 75% of the breaker boys who were killed were under the age of 16. The coal mining industry was, and in some ways still is, a way of life. It's ingrained into the family lineage. Women worked, gave birth, and were back at work the next day. Many of the children were stillborn because of the abuses they put on their bodies during their pregnancies. And when their children were old enough, they followed their mother down into the pits. They are proud of the work they do, and during the attempts at reform, they were the last to participate because this was all they knew for generations upon generations upon generations. Even the children, the teens, would demand to be allowed to work, no matter what it was doing to their bodies. It didn't matter that they were literally sometimes shaving off 20 to 40 years off of their life expectancy. They would feel shame if they didn't work the mine the way their father did before them. And most didn't know any other way. There was no world outside of the coal mining towns. A coal mining day started around 2 or 3 in the morning when the bell was rung and everyone came from their houses and made their way to the mine until 5 or 6 that evening when the bell told them they could return home once again. It was long, hard, hot, back-breaking work. The girls who couldn't find work as domestic servants, which was considered prime employment, may have had succumbed to a few other choices. Prostitution, which I, I can't even make myself talk about when it comes to children. And then factory work. Women and girls were the majority of employees during this time and could be found mostly in the textile mills or other factory assembly line work. The cotton mills. By 1900, one quarter of all textile workers were under the age of 16. In only four more years, that number went to half. Half the workers were children. And 20,000 of those were under the age of 12. Mill owners saw the employment of children was all but a requirement to guarantee a successful, profitable mill. The cotton mills had their own little scam going. When a cotton mill came to town, so to speak, it brought its own town with it. It provided homes, schooling, grocery stores, utilities for the mill families. All of the surrounding areas or states looked on it as a profitable addition to th and encouraged the factories to choose them. The plan was brilliant, actually. When workers fell into debt, which they would, because the mill towns had it rigged that way, they knew that they could put their children into the system to try and ease that debt. According to the accounting records of some of the mill towns, 
the families tended to stay in debt as the mills were in control of deducting their homes and expenses from their paychecks. In some mill towns, before they were even hired, it was required for the head of the household to commit his entire family to labor at the mill. They, in turn, would provide an education for the children from the age of 5 to around 10 or 12 before the children would switch to the mill for full-time, sometimes lifetime, employment. It was ingrained into the mindset of the families that they should feel gratitude to the mill town for taking care of them. And it worked. They felt indebted, and so they worked. Children who were too young to do some jobs for income were able to come to the mill with their mothers to help. They didn't earn money, but would do small hand tasks like pretend sweeping, picking up scraps, reaching into tight spaces to untangle things. Those even smaller, who were babies or just toddled about, were looked after as a collective. The labor bosses would turn a blind eye to the children so long as the mothers continued to her work. The mills actually viewed this as an investment into the company's future. By having the little ones there at such a young age, they became comfortable and familiar with that type of environment, and it would seem only natural for them to fall into the employment when they were of age. The mill owners saw that, quote, the presence of children in the mill benefited the parent, end quote, meaning she would feel better being with her child and, in turn, be grateful to the company for allowing them to be close by. In the Midwest, the glass factories, though small, accomplished much of their work with the use of child labor. Young boys between the ages of 8 and 10 had hands small enough to clean the insides of the bottles and were also used to transport bottles from the blower, which is the skilled laborer who creates the shape and the mold of the bottles, to the cooling oven. The income of the blowers was sometimes dependent on which the speed the child could transport the baskets of bottles. I'm sure you can see the potential for disaster in this scenario. The baskets they carried from one place to the other weren't heavy, which is why the employers insisted that the work is, quote, light and easy, end quote, but the boys were required to run their route quickly and without interruption. They suffered burns from molten glass, they stepped on broken shards with their bare feet, and their lungs were burned raw from the hot, humid temperatures in the small rooms. And once their shift was over, usually in the early morning hours, they would only have to go out into the cold morning air to catch their death of sickness. Literally. Many of the boys died from infected burns, but mostly from pneumonia and other lung diseases. These boys were not under the protection of the new unions that were spreading across the country to protect the adults from unfair wages and long, abusive hours of labor. So these young blower dogs, as they were called, would never be allowed to advance into a skilled position by way of apprenticeship. These coveted roles were usually set aside for the blower's own sons, who they would never bring into work as a blower's dog. And these boys were not protected from wage and schedule abuse. They would be required to work for 14-plus-hour shifts, and it was spent running back and forth, back and forth, in an atmosphere hot enough to liquefy sand into glass. 
Many factories preferred night work, including the glass factories, because there were no restrictions. It helped that children were too frightened to run away and would be more willing to stay at work. Many factories added barbed wire around the facility to keep the workers in. Just having to say those last few sentences out loud is so disturbing to me. And, not finally, it's about all the examples I can handle for one episode. There are the matchmakers. This isn't about Dolly Levi finding the perfect mate. This was about a small factory room, dimly lit, packed in with women and girls as young as six years old, hunched over their workstations, dipping pre-cut sticks into a phosphorus goo for 12 to 16 hours a day. Working in unventilated conditions would lead the children to contract tuberculosis or raise their risk of getting rickets to drastic percentages. But the worst symptom of matchmaking, nope, not even a fire hazard, it was something called fossy jaw. This exposure to the fumes of phosphorus day in and day out caused the bones of the jaw to decay. It was extremely painful as the teeth and jawbones would rot away and deform their face. The smell of the disease was so bad, many often lost their jobs because the factory didn't want them to be seen as part of their employee. It was a painful, incurable, and eventually they would lose their jaw entirely. The stigma that was attached to those with fossy jaw was similar to leprosy. They were shunned in public, and the smell was more than most could handle, so they were sent away to live and eventually die on their own. It wasn't until 1910 that phosphorus was outlawed in the use of matchmaking. The little match girls that your image probably conjures up of the small little girls, their hair wrapped in a scarf selling bundles of matches on the street corners. Yes, that was a thing too. Those were considered home jobs. The children would come from the factory and purchase boxes of matches. Then they would take them home, bundle them up to go out and sell them. This was a job for those of about three to eight. They could also sell bouquets of flowers in that same fashion. In the 1850s, the Children's Aid Society came into play. I really believe that they had the children's best interest at heart. The streets of the cities, New York especially, were running rampant with children who had lost their parents or whose parents were in poor houses. No one knew what to do with them. And if you recall, idle children was practically the worst thing ever. In 1854, the Children's Aid Society would take groups of boys and load them up on trains and take them to other parts of the country. They were taught a skill so as not to be a burden and to, quote, avoid the growth of a future dependent class, end quote. They would send out flyers to the towns along the train's route looking for people and families that would be interested in taking in one of these boys. Groups of 10 to 20 boys would go with a chaperone to take them to their new destinations. This was basically the precursor to foster care. They had the boys' future in mind, and as there was even a contract in place for the boys to be cared for until he was 18. Over the years, the Children's Aid Society placed over 200,000 boys into homes between the years of 1854 and 1934. 
Their intentions were to offer a better future for the boys, but as you'll hear later, there's always a few that just want to upset the whole apple cart. Hello listeners, we're Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Children were readily seen by the economic value they brought to the family. Any money they earned was either paid directly to the parent, or the children were expected to turn over their wages to their parent. A child was considered property to his or her father, and he could do with the child as he wished. In fact, in Viviana Zelitzer's book, Pricing the Priceless Child, she writes, In the case of accidental deaths of children, the factories and life insurance policies were required to pay, quote, the probable value of the services of the deceased from the time of death to the time he would have attained his majority, less the expenses of his maintenance during the same time, end quote. She went on to show the evolution of the useful child who was an asset to his family, and as the view of the child altered from economic stance to a more emotional viewpoint, the child morphed from a contributing member to the welfare of the family to the useless child of the last hundred years who is considered a drain. At one point, it was believed that American children contributed between 28 and 33 percent of the household income. Immigrant families ranked even higher with upwards of 33 to 46 percent. At this point in time, the child or children were the secondary earners in the family dynamic that was later replaced with the wife. But it was because of this emotional shift that the labor laws were given a chance to gain traction. However, the problem was no one really saw a problem. As early as 1813, there was an attempt to regulate child labor in the way of education. This law would require that children working in factories be educated in reading, writing, and arithmetic. And we saw how the mill towns opted to handle that. The battle waged on as regulations were decided on a state-by-state basis. No one really wanted to change the status quo. Not the factories, not the parents, not even the children. But by the 1840s, all the northern states had some kind of child labor law in place. They limited the working age to at least 9 to 14 and adjusted their workday hours for children under the age of 12 to 10 hours. These laws had very little impact. There were loopholes, such as they could work younger or longer hours if the parents gave permission or if the child were an orphan. And then there were just the unscrupulous. Many children had no idea what their true ages were because the parents would lie so that the child could work. And in the cases of the glass companies, they had no qualms about using children under the required age. They would have agents find boys from states as far away as New York, orphans and vagrant children, boys found in poorhouses. With the aid of the Children's Aid Society, they were sent by trains to guardian families who were supposed to care and nurture them. 
And what's sad is the Children's Aid Society believed that they were saving these boys from the inner-city labor markets, but were just sending them to rural-city labor markets instead. So even though the law stated that children less than 14 years old were not allowed to work, the boys as young as 8 were brought in by these guardians, complete with affidavits saying that they were boys of 14 or older, and they were living off of the boys' wages. And then, if the laws were inconsistent on reducing their hours, the factories would combat that by sometimes increasing the speeds of the assembly line to get more work done, or decreasing the pay of the workers. And since time is money, they used the children's petite size to climb into the smaller places and unclog stalling machines or tighten bolts, all while the machines continued running. This, as you can imagine, resulted in a multitude of accidents. And when a child is injured and sent home, that means no income. If the child lost an appendage or was seriously injured, that usually meant that they no longer had a job at all. The public was starting to become aware that there was a problem, but to help you understand what the perception was of child labor at the time, let me give you this example. In 1874, over 20 people were killed in a fire at a granite mill in Massachusetts. They were all young girls, some as young as five years old. They were burned alive or killed in an attempt to jump from the window to safety. The story made nationwide headlines. Every major news syndicate carried the story. Debates were had in barber shops and pubs and even the houses of government. Editorials raged about the greater fire safety measures needed to happen. The Chicago Tribune added that they should make the workplace safer and more secure. No one was incensed by the fact that it was children that lost their lives. Why wasn't the question, what were all those children doing in there in the first place? Why wasn't one of the solutions, yes, make greater efforts for safety, but get the kids out and replace them with adults who could have had a better chance at survival? Even as more and more stories like the one above surfaced, people didn't think that anything needed to be done about it. It was just the way things were. Stuff happened. Mines collapsed. Children lost limbs from runaway coal trolleys. They lost fingers, crushed their hands, and got limbs caught in gears. Stuff happens. It's the price of being in business. Most parents were unaware of the stark conditions their children worked under, and so could not understand why their children were being kept from work. The Wisconsin child labor community reported that, quote, The violation of child labor laws, both in letter and spirit, seems to us to increasingly come rather from the side of the parent and the child than from the side of the employer, end quote. Many families were dependent on that additional income, no matter the dangers. In 1904, one of the first who became vocal about child labor legislation in the South was Edgar Garner Murphy. He founded the National Child Labor Committee to try and organize support for child labor reforms. Some of the things they fought for were minimum working ages of 14 for light factory or manufacturing work and 16 for mining. 
He also wanted to maximize the work day to eight hours, require proof of age, and outlaw night work. The industry wasn't budging. One woman even remarked to the National Child Labor Committee, quote, I'm really tired of seeing so many big children, 10 years old even, playing in the streets, end quote. The South especially wanted nothing to do with the laws and the reforms. Even in the 1890s, more than 18% of children aged 10 to 15 were working, legally. One senator from Indiana, Albert Beveridge, proposed a bill in 1906 that called out the Southern businesses who had fought tooth and nail to keep child labor intact. He spoke openly, saying, quote, I come to the section of the country where this evil is the greatest and most shameful, where it is practiced upon the purest American strain that exists in this country, the children in the Southern cotton mills, end quote. He introduced his bill to Congress seeking to outlaw the transport in interstate commerce of any articles mined or manufactured by children under 14 years of age. Now, at this time, no one had really bothered the coal mining towns. They were kind of doing their own thing, keeping to themselves, trying to go unnoticed. But the senator called them out with this bill. He said, quote, we cannot permit any man or corporation to stunt the bodies, minds, and souls of the American children. We cannot thus wreck the future of the American Republic. End quote. People were starting to hear, and maybe even pay attention, but nothing seemed important enough to move forward on. The National Association of Manufacturers chairman went so far as to say, quote, this plot against the advancement and the happiness of the American boy is also a ploy against industrial expansion and prosperity of the country, end quote. It was their belief that the average child was destined for factory work, and through banning child labor, you were stripping them of the opportunity to develop, quote, good industrial habits, end quote. The actions against child labor had finally made it to the federal level. Most of the South had come around, but only enough to discourage federal interventions. By 1910, only four southern states had added minimum age requirements. Even with all the awareness and laws put into place, there was still an average of 18% of children aged 10 to 15 years old employed by factories and mills. There was really no way to enforce any of the new laws. The Bureau of Labor discovered that, quote, Age limit laws in effect at the time were openly and freely violated in every state we visited, end quote. At this time, less than 80% of 14-year-olds attended school. Finally, in 1916, the bill was passed by the House 343 to 46, and the bill was passed by the Senate 52 to 12. The Keating-Owen Child Labor Act bill was signed into law on September 1, 1916. Hang on, don't clink those champagne glasses just yet. In only three years, it was struck down and the children returned to work. It was not until 1938 that the Fair Labor Standards Act would be passed and held up by the court. Another 19 years! 
This law initiated the first minimum wage, which was 25 cents an hour. It limited the work week to 44 hours. It restricted the child labor to those ages 16 and over. And hefty penalties for violations. The children were free to be children. And if you have another moment, I'd like to share one more story about a simple, quiet man who made a loud historical statement. David Clark, the editor of the North Carolina's publication Southern Textile Bulletin, argued that no child's health had ever been harmed by working in a mill. He wanted you to believe that the bill was a plot by Northerners to control the South. He accused the National Child Labor Committee of using quote, sensationalist publicity, end quote, to gain public support for their legislation. The pro-child labor movement added to this by painting an idyllic picture of the life of children who are employed by the mills. The manufacturer's record reported that mill employers witnessed, quote, the emancipation of pale-faced children gaining the appearance of robust health once the child entered the mill. I'm rolling my eyes, but you can almost understand how there was no rush for reform. Unless you were in the mix, you were not getting clear facts from either side. Even if you were, when talking to children, they had no idea what they were doing might be considered unlawful. It was just their way of life. They didn't even realize the childhood things they were missing most of the time because all of the kids were doing the same things. It wasn't until photographer... Lewis Hine brought light to the subject. This man would go to the businesses and factories and tell them that he was a Bible salesman and just wanted to bring the word to the workers. He went to where the children were, coast to coast, and took photos. And then they would tell him their stories. No judgment, no shame, and he just listened. For the first time, America got a glimpse into the lives and the workplaces of these children. His photos are raw and so honest. The children look directly into the camera, and sometimes they even smile, and their sweet faces may not tell the sadness, but their tired eyes do. Their shoeless feet, tattered clothing, cuts and bruises, missing limbs, the shock of their ages, the scenes where they worked, the jobs they performed, and then their words. They were happy to tell him everything about their jobs, show him where they worked, and even gave a demonstration. As most children do, they loved to be listened to. The organization, or Heinz himself, did not feel that it was his job to try and paint the businesses as the evil giant or show that the economy was so out of sorts that families had to rely on the income of their children in order to make ends meet, or reveal that there were parents out there that really did let their children do all the heavy lifting as far as the care of the family was concerned, because that was a thing. The public knew all of these things, but didn't want to believe that it could be that bad. So while it's not Heinz' intentions... The photos told all. The photos, all by themselves, took away the words, the spin, the angles, and showed the people 
the children, their working conditions, the dangerous machinery, and the hazardous environment. He didn't have to mention the hours and hours that they were toiling away. He didn't have to mention their educations were practically non-existent and that many couldn't even sign their own names. He didn't point fingers. He didn't lay blame. He showed the children. He became their voice without shouting to drown out others. If you head over to www.ragtagnetwork.com and click on the Bag of Bones pages, you'll find some of his work there. You'll see for yourself that they are not gory or set up for shock value like the methods used today. They're very tastefully done, but, oh, cut straight to the heart. Like I mentioned, they are very honest. We'll get the link in the show notes as well. It's worth it to see the artistic language of the time, if nothing else. You cannot implement change overnight. Once things start on their trajectory, and even if you see that it is heading in a dangerous direction, you can't just pull the plug. You have to change the mindset and the awareness. It's a process that can't happen until the heart and the mind can see that things can't stay the way they are a moment longer. And as mentioned by author Viviana Zelitzer, those changes made into law in 1938 began the new trajectory of how our children view the workforce today. And so on and on it goes. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Bag of Bones. Be sure to like and review on your favorite platform and come hang out with me on the socials. And don't forget to sign up for my free Bag of Bones gift just for you as my way of saying thank you for being here. The link is in the show notes. Until next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere with research by Anna Krunkeberg. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.